Okay, let me introduce Anne-Marie Riley to you, please. Uh, Anne-Marie is the Vice President for Overseas Operations uh, uh, for CRS, and she's directly responsible for supervising the headquarters-based overseas operations departments for emergencies, overseas support, and program quality and support. She joined CRS in 1992 in El Salvador, primarily working in the health sector. She quickly advanced to senior management positions in Angola, Haiti, Burundi, and Liberia, overseeing multi-sectoral programs in complex civil conflicts. She returned to CRS headquarters to use this experience as the agency's first emergency response technical advisor. In this position, Anne-Marie was instrumental in the creation of CRS's emergency response team in 1999. And subsequently, she moved to Nairobi, Kenya, to take on the role of the first team leader of the emergency response team. Under her leadership, the team responded to a variety of high-profile crises in areas including Kosovo, the 1999 conflict, Gujarat, India, in two, the 2001 earthquake, Afghanistan, the 2001 conflict, and Southern Africa, the 2002 food security crisis. After three years of service as Regional Director for Southern Africa from 2003 to 2006, covering seven country programs, Angola, Lesotho, Madagascar, Malawi, South Africa, Zambia, and Zimbabwe, Anne-Marie once again returned to Baltimore in 2006 to work as Director of Overseas Operations Strategy. In 2007, she became Chief of Staff to Catholic Relief Services President Ken Hackett. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in Government in French from the University of Notre Dame and a Master's in International Affairs from Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs with specializations in Economic and Political Development and Latin American Studies. She was born and raised in New City, New York, and currently lives with her family in Northern Baltimore. We're very privileged to have Anne-Marie with us today. Thank you. My head is still swimming, I don't know about yours, but after the two presentations that I just heard, um, tremendous um, overviews of, of very diverse but obviously connected um, aspects of all of our kind of experiences, but particularly uh, with Haiti, um, the, the particular kind of setting, I think, of some of the natural world um, aspects of, of what has impacted Haiti most recently, um, but also, of course, that, that much broader historical context um, I think has been great in setting the stage. I feel a little bit that um, I'm going to like bring you all right back down, <laughs> really, right with my presentation. Um, but uh, you'll see the connections. I mean, the connections are there, um, and they're woven throughout this entire presentation. Um, I'm going to try to keep it short and very much want um, some dynamic of questions back and forth because that's where I think the more interesting conversations obviously happen. Um, from loss to life, um, this is really a snapshot of really the last nine months. So there's a lot that goes behind it. I will talk a little bit about some of the um, decades at least of work of CRS in Haiti, um, but I'm not going to touch too deeply on that. I wanted to focus on um, the post-earthquake uh, primarily and looking to the future where we hope, uh, at least with the work of Catholic Relief Services and all of our partners on the ground in Haiti, uh, and the people we serve in Haiti, where we're hoping to, um, to go in the, at least the next five years. 
Um, Sierra's began working in Haiti uh, after Hurricane Hazel hit the country. You heard all about the cyclical, cyclical hurricanes that, that, that affect the country. Um, as an organization of the Catholic Church in the U.S., we work in the countries around the world on the invitation of the local Catholic Church there. Um, there's a negotiation that goes on, what our role will be, the presence that we'll have in that country, who we will work with, um, that obviously develops over time, evolves over time. But particularly in Haiti, um, Catholic Relief Services uh, became an actor on the ground in Haiti in 1954 in the context of supporting the local Catholic Church to respond to the impact of Hurricane Hazel. Since then, you'll see a whole variety of sectoral areas where we work, um, in which we work in Haiti, um, and I could spend, well, not me, but um, all of my fabulous colleagues who are specialists in these particular areas could spend days in talking through what does it mean to work in the area of HIV and AIDS in Haiti? Um, what does it mean to work in the area of water and sanitation? I'm not going to get into the details on that, but just to give you a perspective of um, the, the general areas in which we work in Haiti, um, because we do, as an, as an organization, our mission um, is you know, at its highest level to alleviate suffering and promote human development, um, but we um, have over the years developed certain expertise and approaches and um, that, that, we, that play out in a whole variety of contexts in different ways, but overarching all of that is that, that we promote in, what we call integral human development, and it's, 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 it's looking at the whole person, all the various assets that an individual, a family, a community bring to their own development, and where, as an international uh, relief and development agency, we can be involved in facilitating um, maybe areas that need a little bit more support. Um, so it, it, it means that we're not a specialist just in health, we're not a specialist agency just in microfinance. We do um, a wide variety of things because we try to be sure that we're able to approach, um, you know, uh, respond to a wide variety of needs that all of us as human beings have. Um, in terms of these interventions, I did mention just a couple of things that you know, are overarching. I just spoke a little bit to um, supporting kind of communities to participate in decision-making in their own lives as agents of change in their own lives um, is something that, that we weave throughout all of our programming. Um, increasing resilience, uh, a lot of our programs, we try to find ways in which um, we're not just addressing sort of the here and now, an individual sort of issue that someone's uh, facing in that time, but really looking at the bigger picture and looking particularly at shocks that could occur. Um, and the most obvious is looking at you know, cyclical shocks of hurricanes and working with, say, uh, rural farmers, um, in which uh, we don't want to just look at increasing food productivity, but you've got to be thinking all the time, what happens when the next hurricane hits? What happens when the drought is worsened this year, et cetera? So that those kind of aspects of the longer-term sustainability of the work are constantly woven in to the, um, the, the project at hand. And then advocating for good governance is not something that is always sort of um, overt in some of the work that we do. We do have particular work in social justice and human rights and, and promoting civil society, the role of, of uh, local organizations and communities in, in civil society. Um, but again, something that we try to weave into all of our programming. Um, there's usually an opportunity to figure out a way in which um, maybe, for example, if it's staying with the agriculture um, example, you're helping to increase productivity, you're also helping to form farmers groups who can advocate with their local government for um, whatever it is that might help uh, the whole community. Um, so another sort of major kind of theme that, uh, that, that we weave through all of our work. Um, I'm going to show a very short video just to give you a little bit of a feeling of that, that moment in time. 
um, on January 12th. Um, I think it's important in part not just to, I mean, I think you all know, we've all seen what happened there. We weren't there. Um, maybe somebody in this room was, um, but, but you know, I, obviously as human beings you can, you can kind of feel the sense of things. Um, but I think the point of this is, is, is to, to put you in patient's shoes to the, of the, that particular part of the country that was affected to the extent possible, um, you know, where we are right now, but also um, to, um, how, do, how do I put it? Um, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to it in, in a moment, but just to give you a sense of this. I wanted to say and lost my train of thought there for a moment was that the drama of what happened, the trauma of what happened is going to be with Haitians for many, many years to come. Um, and it's, it's, people are working hard right now, they're moving quickly, they're trying to re, you know, rebuild their lives, their, their society, their homes, etc. But the, the trauma of what occurred in only 35 seconds, the amount of time that that video took, that's how long it took for this to happen. And it's, 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 I just think that montage helps to kind of put it into that perspective, just put yourself in that moment in time and think all it took was 35 seconds. And the, but the point, I think the bigger point, goes to what um, Professor Cato was speaking to, the whole idea that this was 35 seconds built on decades, if not centuries, of injustice, structural problems, external actors um, having uh, an influence on this small country, incredibly small country, um, having such a negative impact on the country over time, and Haitians themselves um, uh, setting up a context in the country that, um, that resulted in, in, in a natural disaster of very high magnitude having an impact that um, was maybe beyond what it could have been in different circumstances. That's all you can look in hindsight and say, oh, if only there had been better building standards and so on and so forth, um, things would have been less negative in what happened in the country. You can look at Chile and the earthquake that occurred there only a couple of months later and the impact that it had um, on human life and um, livelihoods. And you can see how all of those decades and decades of lack of investment, of uh, geopolitics playing out in a small island nation, of um, illiteracy rates being unbelievably high, of unemployment, of poor infrastructure, of little electricity, little water um, delivery, basic services not being um, available to the people, and you see the result. Um, $7.8 billion uh, might seem like a drop in the bucket if you look at the US government uh, budget, but for the government of Haiti, um, very, very significant. Not only will they be living out the trauma of what happened at this moment in time and the subsequent months uh, to, to today, but they'll be living it out for decades to come in terms of how they recover as a nation, um, not just socially and politically, but economically as well. 
In terms of the earthquake response and recovery program for, for CRS, um, broad strokes um, in an immediate emergency response, it's about saving lives. It's, it's as simple as that, as hard as that, when it comes down to actually how you do it, but as simple as that in terms of the immediate response and the efforts that an organization such as mine and all of our partners on the ground um, are focused on. Um, but we try as quickly as possible to start moving to supporting sustainable livelihoods. It's helping people to get back on their feet in whatever way that might be um, so that they can start to recover um, and, and um, uh, their own livelihoods and not rely on external um, support. Um, that's extremely loaded kind of comment in a place like Haiti where uh, the country, the vast majority of people in the country have been relying on external support for quite some time. Um, and then again, this third sort of aspect of it in terms of strengthening civil society. Um, it's something, again, that we try to weave through all of our work. Um, it's a little bit hard to kind of grab hold of, um, but an important aspect of the work that we do. These are the sectors that we're working in in terms of the immediate response. Um, and um, these will shift over time. Some you know, camp support, for example, we've been decreasing uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, and in other areas, we'll be increasing um, the, the, the support that we're providing. But I'll talk th through a, a little bit, try to give some highlights of what that means, what all these kind of activities in these different sectors mean, um, and, um, and then a few of just the achievements to date. And I just want to be clear, when I talk about the work of Catholic Relief Services in, in Haiti or anywhere else in the world, it's not just about CRS. CRS, our MO um, in, in wherever we work around the world is to work with local partners. Our, our major, our primary local partner is the local Catholic Church. And our sister agency in countries around the world is uh, Caritas. Um, uh, we're part of the Caritas Internacionales Confederation. The, I think, equivalent in the United States would be Catholic Charities. Um, every country in the world almost, um, I think there are 169 members of the Caritas Internationales, Internationales Confederation, um, has a national Caritas structure and Caritas agencies in each diocese that provide social service uh, delivery in a variety of sectors. There's no kind of one size fits all approach, um, but they have public health work, they have medical work in some places. HIV and AIDS work, um, microfinance support, agriculture support, peace and justice work. Um, so that's our natural partner. And in Haiti, we work with the National Caritas Agency, as well as diocesan Caritases. Um, we also work with a lot of other partners. We're not limited to working with, with, with Caritas. But, but just to kind of put that out there, because I'll say CRS, but I don't just mean CRS. Um, I will also say, though, in a place like Haiti, we have become much more operational than we would typically be. We have 600 staff in Haiti right now. That's atypical of a CRS program. There might be about you know, a few other programs like that around the world where we have our own staff in a size of that magnitude. Um, and that speaks to some of these issues around capacity, uh, local um, capacity, and um, which, which is a serious issue and something that we, we're trying to address in a more effective manner in the years to come. Um, it's one of those things where we look back at 55 years in the country and say that's one area where we really didn't succeed um, as we would have liked. Um, but just to speak then a little bit to um, some of the work that we're doing since the earthquake, we were working with um, the uh, oldest Catholic hospital in, in Port-au-Prince prior to the earthquake, Saint-François de Salle, which is right down near the Palais National that collapsed um, uh, downtown near the Champ de Mars. And um, the hospital, 80% of the hospital collapsed. About 65 
bodies, people, workers in the hospital, mothers, children, patients, family members are buried in the rubble there. Um, but about 20% you know, of the buildings remained and a courtyard remained and the staff um, immediately started trying to figure out how to serve the people who were injured, people f walking through the door um, starting right after the earthquake with broken arms, broken legs, other kinds of um, very serious injuries. My colleagues were able to go down there um, within 24 hours. Um, a lot of our, our office is a little bit away and it was very hard to maneuver through streets immediately following the earthquake. But they were able to get down there within 24 hours and um, touch base with our colleagues down there and figure out what needed to be done in the short term and immediately set up um, triage centers and um, in the courtyard that, that was unaffected and um, were able to, to start work with people that basically just walked in the, in the door about a week after, um, during the, the course of the week, volunteers from all over the world. Um, not the best way to go about doing things, but certainly it was useful at that moment in time. I think there were some Dutch doctors that came in and some others um, and were able to get started on immediate response. You'll see when I go to the next slide, um, we developed from there, within a couple of weeks, a very structured partnership with the University of Maryland Shock Trauma Hospital. We had been working with the University of Maryland Center uh, Institute for Infectious Diseases, um, actually Institute for Human Virology, um, experts in infectious diseases on antiretroviral therapy programs. We were able to connect with those people that we already knew up there um, and, and engage the premier, one of the premier shock trauma uh, hospital staffs in the world and over the course of the following five months brought down teams um, that worked um, to the extent possible with the local doctors at the hospital to uh, perform over 900 surgeries, um, some of which were repairing um, not so well done surgeries um, uh, over the course of the first month by well-intentioned but perhaps not the um, best placed uh, people to do some immediate um, support that was needed. Um, some tremendous work has been done at that hospital and there's a whole story behind it that I could go into later if, if someone is interested. But that was one of our major focus, uh, areas of focus at the beginning. The second was um, uh, serving some of these spontaneous displaced persons camps that emerged. Um, people were obviously terrified to go back into their homes. Some had lost their homes completely. Others were afraid to go back where they saw cracks in the wall. And um, remember that over the course of the following couple of months, tremors were happening, aftershocks were happening, um, uh, quite frequently, some very, very strong. Um, so people were very concerned and um, ended up out in the streets and eventually ended up up in, in open areas. So um, Champ de Mars, the, the kind of plaza in front of the Palais National is now a displaced persons camp. Um, thousands of people living there. Um, this is a picture of the Petionville Golf Club. <laughs> um, there is actually an aerial photo that I wish I had brought. I was thinking about it when Professor Galdano was showing some of his pictures that's, that was in the New York Times uh, that really kind of dramatizes what happened. And it shows an aerial shot of, a, of, of this, the, the land uh, prior to the earthquake and maybe a few days later. Um, and completely covered, um, barely any open space. People started flocking into the, the golf course and setting up, you know, bringing whatever they had with them, uh, whatever household items they could bring, um, and um, making some very rustic sort of um, shelters. And by the, um, I would say week two or three, about 45,000 people were living in this, on this golf course. So put that in your head. <laughs> Think of a golf course, put 45,000 people there. But add to it that this is a really bad golf course. Um, <laughs> from what little I know, it's, it's on like a 45 degree angle. Um, so not only were people on this kind of just basic, but, but there was a hill going up. 
So when the first rains come, you could, came, you can imagine what, what people experienced. Um, so we, um, our staff, who uh, we had brought in a number of people, experts in emergency response from around the world, um, two of whom were uh, down within 48 hours to the DR and drove across the border, um, who were kind of working with our partners and others and assessing what was going on, got to this area. The 82nd Airborne was there. Um, they, had, they had just arrived and were um, at a loss, not quite sure what to do with 45,000 people. Um, were flying in helicopters, maybe your son was, I don't know if he's 82nd Airborne, but um, they were bringing in um, wa bottled water and other sort of basic supplies. Um, were very happy to see an organization like Catholic Relief Services show up, um, and we had a tremendous partnership. Um, and I, I say that with a whole lot of sort of like, you know, issues around civil military, um, the role of civil military and the, 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 the way organizations such as mine interface with the military. Um, in this situation, I thought it was, it was everyone playing to their very best and um, with, the, with the, the shared objective of meeting basic human needs and alleviating suffering. And we had a tremendously positive partnership with the 82nd Airborne over the course of about three months or so, where um, they helped provide tremendous logistics support that we couldn't possibly have done on our own at the beginning. We provided the expertise in how you work with a community um, that's just been traumatized like this and displaced um, uh, to organize small community groups within that larger community to count people, identify families, figure out who the most vulnerable are, organize a system that is um, respectful of the people that we're serving and organized to prevent um, any you know, security problems when you have a crowd like that. Um, and we ended up doing, um, I thought, um, my colleagues exceptional work in some basic food distributions and non-food items, kits of just basic hygiene items that people needed. Um, you know, we served the, the, that group for about three months with, with, with that kind of assistance and the help of the 82nd Airborne um, logistics and, and some of the security, um, you know, crowd control basically. Um, that kind of speaks a little bit just to the, the, again, the idea that, you know, working with communities to help them to help themselves. Um, we were able to identify, and I don't even, I'm sure he kind of presented himself, a, um, a Haitian pastor who um, ended up being unbelievably helpful in organizing people. Um, and I think we must have hired about 50 people within the community to basically do a census of this large camp um, in a very organized way so that that first distribution could be done within about a week and a half, um, two weeks. Um, obviously, uh, that's not a long-term solution. Um, unfortunately, people are still living in the camp like that, um, and there are a whole number of reasons for that. Um, it's extremely frustrating for everyone involved, obviously for the people living under these tents most. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's scary to think that they might be living there for another year or two. I think that's a very real possibility. We've already done a second major distribution of, for that camp and a couple of others of new tarps um, because the tarps that they had for pretty high quality tarps have already been destroyed more or less um, over the course of the last nine months. Um, we've done tremendous work with partners, not just CRS and not just local partners, but a lot of other international organizations who are in this particular camp to do flood mitigation, to dig canals. That golf course will never be the same. <laughs> it's, it's got canals that run through it and um, and efforts that have been, you know, gone on for several months to just try to make it a, a safer place to the extent that that's possible. Um, but what we really want to see happen is people moving into um, what we're calling T shelters, transitional shelters. Um, this is not permanent housing, um, but they are shelters that have been developed 
um, according to experienced people in the, sh in the shelter sector from around the world and other emergencies, some basic housing that, that, that can withstand hurricanes. Um, it's built, built on a, con a concrete slab. It has, um, it has a, a tin roof, but it has um, um, what do you call it? reinforcements to make sure that roof doesn't fly off in, uh, in, in high winds. Um, and it off, but it also is set up in a way where it can be dismantled and moved um, because one of the, the major challenges we're facing in, in, in Port-au-Prince that people are facing, the government and others who are trying to find a housing solution for all the, the, the people who have lost their homes is the land tenure issue that, that um, colleagues referred to. Um, the, the, the estimate is about 70% of uh, people in Port-au-Prince rent or rented before the earthquake, didn't own the property that they were living on. And um, that creates all sorts of challenges about where you build a house and who that house belongs to. Um, so there's tremendous challenges about land title um, and the effort at the beginning of the emergency with the government and others was to find space outside of town. There wasn't much open space in Port-au-Prince. Um, to find space outside of town, all sorts of challenges around that um, about um, the whole issue of a government that has not been very effective, that is beholden to certain interests, the very small number of individuals who own the vast majority of land in the country, um, concern, I think, about on the part of the politicians to rock the boat and, and, um, and take land away from landowners, claim it. Um, tremendous fear. So a lot of concern on the part of organizations such as mine. Why, are they, why isn't this moving faster? Why aren't we being told where we could start building these shelters? It took months before the government was able to identify some land. And when they did, it was not the best spot in the world. Um, people did not want to go there. It was too far from town, too far from their livelihoods, too far from their families, their extended families and communities. Um, and it's, it's become a real problem. So it, but it took months for us to, to understand that dynamic and realize that wasn't going to be the, big, the, 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 the best solution. And um, only a few months ago, we started shifting gears and trying to figure out how do we work with the people living in these communities to go back with them individually. And you can imagine 40,000, 45,000 just in that one camp. That's not counting you know, the other camps that you know, about over a million people who are homeless. But going back with, with, to their, their home site and talk, looking at it and trying to figure out, is this a site where we can remove the debris, get a small group of people together, pay them to remove the debris, you know, break the, the debris up into small bits that could be used to make other kind of concrete and, 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 um, and materials, and, um, and figure out who owns that land, figure out how to build, rebuild this house to involve the community. Um, because one thing we're trying very hard to do is figure out how to help reestablish a feeling of community. Um, if you've got five houses next to each other on a street and two of them have been destroyed and you come in and you know, provide two you know, perhaps nicer houses than the three that were there um, and um, someone's coming with supplies that they bring from the camp and other kinds of things, you don't want to create discord in that community and jealousy and other things which are basic human nature. Um, and we wanted to find ways in which we can work with that community to provide other services that might be needed in that community and to actually engage neighbors to build that house for the individual and to try to start um, helping to, to, to reinforce that community feeling um, and, and um, pride. It's a, it's a longer term, kind of, it takes a longer time to do this. It's, it's difficult, it takes more staff, more expertise, but we think it's the right thing to do. Um, and we, we are hoping to have 2,000 houses, these transitional shelters built 
by December, and another 6,000 that we're helping to support via um, three other organizations. Um, so 8,000 houses is the expectation that we'll get that done by December. Um, there are a lot of other organizations working on housing, but it's still um, a drop in the bucket to compare to the need. Um, this is just a picture of some of the um, kits that were given out. These were um, uh, compiled, these were just basic hygiene kits and some ready-to-food eat biscuits and, and that kind of thing um, that were distributed at the very beginning of the emergency. These were compiled by volunteers in, in Santo Domingo, um, Catholic Church volunteers who had been organized um, there and um, worked day and night for weeks and weeks to pull these materials together and then we shipped them across the border. The DR opened the border for um, a period of time which was unbelievably important. Um, the Santo Domingo became our staging area for the immediate response. Everything was coming out of the DR. We were shipping things from all over the world um, you know, where we had pre-positioned supplies and, uh, as well as we had pre-positioned supplies in Miami um, and things were all going into the DR. We had a shipping company that gave us free uh, cargo space, um, boats that were going down, ships that were going down anyway twice a week. So we very quickly we were able to get a pipeline going in through the DR and across the border. Um, when customs got, got up and running again on, the, on the, the Haitian side and also on the DR side, things slowed down dramatically and there were some major, major challenges. I won't get into that right now, but, but that first period of time it was tremendously important and helpful to have that governmental support um, from both the Haiti side and the DR side. One of the things we do is um, in trying to help people to recover their livelihoods is to focus on just providing some income, um, basic income. And one way to do that, especially in an emergency where you've got so many infrastructure needs and big projects that could be undertaken, is to simply hire teams of people to do some, uh, in this instance, clearing of a canal, um, a drainage canal. And we try to focus on hiring women um, and also hiring um, populations that might not um, be able to normally find work very easily, um, you know, handicapped and others, and find ways to help provide them with some basic support. These are short-term, one-off kinds of projects. The project might last for two weeks or a month, but it's an important way to both get an important job done um, and provide a little bit of income uh, to those that, that desperately need it. Um, one of the most important sort of um, areas that we work in that, that doesn't necessarily cost a lot of money um, and that we don't actually promote very much for a number of reasons um, is what we call protection. It's one thing to provide for all sorts of basic human needs. Um, everyone needs water and food and so on. Um, but um, in civil conflict you see this most. Uh, you know, a lot of times my colleagues, to put it very, very crudely, would say, why are we helping to feed people and then they get killed the next day? or they get hurt or you know, disappeared or, or whatever, because you know, ultimately it's about human security. Um, you have to meet basic needs, but if there's no security and no protection, especially for the most vulnerable in society, then um, ultimately that person has not you know, um, uh, gotten the assistance that they really need and the support they need. So one of the things we do in terms of protection is really try to seek out the most vulnerable, um, obviously children um, in these kinds of situations, but women, handicapped others, um, we try to see if there might be some programs that we can set up to help them specifically. So in a place like the Pentionville camp, uh, what we've done with partners is set up what we call child-friendly spaces. 
So these are just basically tents, big tents, um, put throughout the, 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 the camp where children can come and at the beginning of the emergency, I don't think we're doing it quite so much now, there were trained counselors, um, therapists, who through play and music and drawing could help the children to deal with you know, the conditions they were in and what happened with the earthquake. And then just basic games and an opportunity for children to come to a place during the day where they felt safe um, and supported. This picture isn't actually of that. <laughs> this picture is actually work that we're doing in the northeast of the country with the Juanista sisters, a group of Colombian nuns that have been present in Haiti for some time on the northeast uh, border, to um, try to prevent human trafficking. Um, it, it's, it's a phenomenon that um, is, uh, occurs in Haiti on a daily basis pre-earthquake. There was an increase, although we don't have actual you know, hard numbers on this kind of thing since it is so underground and um, such a difficult thing to, 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 to get your arms around. But we're working on trying to prevent trafficking of people across the border into the DR for labor, prostitution, um, and some people for onboard trafficking beyond the borders of the DR. Um, so we, this is actually a young woman who works for an organization called Heartland Alliance, who is a trained, um, she's trained in um, working with children when they're coming across a bridge, there's a bridge that leads across uh, from the DR side, the Haiti side to the DR. Um, this is all very organized with the, with the national and local police, if there's a, and they have to have a police officer present with them if, if for them to do this work, but they stay, stand on a daily basis on this bridge. When a child comes across the border, they approach the individual, the adult with the child and the child, and try to ascertain if that child truly does belong with that adult. You can imagine how difficult that is. Um, they separate the child and the adult and try to have a conversation and figure it out. It's a judgment call in many circumstances. It's extremely dangerous. Traffickers make a lot of money in that context, um, but it's incredibly important work. The sisters have, um, they created a safe house, um, and um, it's a place where the children, if there is a child who is identified as not belonging to that individual, they um, can take that child to the safe house, where we also have a family tracing and reunification program in conjunction with UNICEF and others to try to figure out where that child belongs. Now, this is not just earthquake related. There are children, this has been happening. So um, it's something that, um, that has been a long time in coming, I think, to provide some of these services. We also provide services to um, training to the national police and the police in the Fort Liberté area, the, you know, the, the capital city of that, pro that department. Um, to understand and recognize uh, this kind of these issues, but also to understand their own laws um, uh, against it and their own um, the, and the international law that the country, the Republic of Haiti, um, has signed on to, to try to um, strengthen the legal system and protection for um, for these um, these uh, victims of trafficking. Um, it's 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 interesting, fascinating work, uh, extremely important, um, but something that we do try to keep a little bit under the radar because of the um, the um, security aspects. Um, this is a sister, this is one of the counselors. Um, she came from Caritas Lebanon, where um, there's a center for our sister agency in Lebanon of trained counselors that um, provide assistance to domestic abuse um, victims. And we were able to bring two teams from Lebanon over the course of the, about the first five months to Haiti to work with our, our, our partners there and our staff and create the child-friendly centers and provide some of the counseling support. So just to show a little bit again how we work with partners and that international sort of um, perspective of linking in with uh, partners around the world and their expertise. 
And finally, um, this is just a photo of a, a farmer. Um, you know, we continue this work in the rural areas, um, some of those areas that weren't directly impacted by the earthquake, but we consider all of Haiti impacted by the earthquake just because of the magnitude of the issue uh, or the event, um, the impact of it, but also because a lot of rural communities had to absorb displaced family members who went back home um, because there was nowhere else to go. We did an assessment in the um, southern, what we call the southern claw, that southern peninsula, um, out near um, Jeremy and um, did a quick assessment just of what people were experiencing there um, about a month after the earthquake and on average the people that were interviewed had seven additional family members in their house and you can imagine what that's like for people who are already struggling you know living on a, a daily subsistence kind of uh, level so one thing that we were able to do also in the Northeast was to provide um, just vouchers, basically food stamps, but so people could access, we didn't deliver food, there was food in the markets, they just needed some assistance to access the food. Um, we went back about five months later and discovered that about four of those seven people on average went back to Port-au-Prince um, to try to re recoup, try to figure out what happened to their, their property and try to figure out um, if they could get some, uh, some kind of work. Again, it's that pull of that city um, from the rural areas because despite the fact that it's really hard to live in Port-au-Prince, people still see an opportunity there that they don't see in the rural areas. And that is part of this broader phenomenon in the country that they're facing and are trying to figure out how to decentralize the country and provide more opportunities for employment, education, health services outside of the greater Port-au-Prince area. So just to highlight some things, these are just you know, numbers, so I won't go into too much detail, but just to share a little bit of what we've achieved over the course of the last nine months with our partners, um, has been, again, very much focused on that meeting immediate needs side of things, the saving lives, the trying to start kind of um, um, stabilize things, particularly in the, in, in the housing area. Um, but some um, highlights are you know, that there were about 35,000 consultations for primary health care support in the camps. Teams of doctors, nurses, and, and community health workers um, were going out. I think those teams have since been disbanded, although um, I'm, not quite, I'm not entirely sure of that, because I think a lot of um, other organizations have set up more permanent sort of clinics in the camps. But at least at that beginning stage, there were consultations that were conducted. Um, an effort was a uh, very big effort underway at the beginning of the emergency, very shortly after, to make sure children continue to get their vaccines. Um, so we provided about 12,000 vaccinations, um, about 30,000 consultations in, in, in the hospitals, and as I mentioned with the shock trauma team out of University of Maryland, over 900 surgeries. Um, and we also are partnering with the St. Charles uh, Rehabilitation Center um, um, a little bit outside of the main Port-au-Prince area to provide some rehabilitation services. You can imagine the, the need for um, support to people who have received prosthetics, um, who've had to have limbs amputated or had severe um, orthopedic injuries. Um, in terms of livelihood and food security, um, some of the immediate food assistance, which had to stop, it was um, dictated by the government of Haiti around end of March, um, sorry, end of April, early May, to stop general food distributions. Um, and there were some very good reasons for this and we were supportive of it. Um, didn't really like the way it happened in terms of the abruptness of it, but um, the concern was that um, local food producers were not going to be able to continue to produce and make their own living and continue the agricultural production in the area um, when free food was being given out to the vast majority of the population. Um, so it was, it was an important decision, a right decision. Did some people suffer? Probably, um, and that's, very disconcerting. 
um, but it was a, I think it was something that they did need to do. We did, we were able, and we do continue to provide institutional support. So we provide about food assistance to about 70 orphanages, homes for the elderly, and other kinds of um, social safety net institutions and um, organizations in the greater Port-au-Prince area. Um, food is still, food security is a major issue. There's a deficit of something like 400 kilocalories per day for a typical patient um, uh, in terms of their food basic needs of, of, of caloric intake. Um, so it continues to be an issue. Um, we had a food school feeding program prior to the earthquake that expanded by about 30,000 children um, because, again, kids were being displaced. Most of that food program is in the southern peninsula, but they've absorbed um, you know, tens of thousands of more children into these schools, so we were able to increase the assistance provided for those children. I already mentioned some of the protection work and then the water and sanitation work, um, which is also incredibly important. And I understand there'll be a symposium here in November to talk about that in a little more specificity. Um, really in, um, incredibly important for the obvious reasons of, again, meeting basic human needs, but also preventing um, other kinds of illnesses, um, waterborne illnesses um, especially. I think it was uh, something that I read in a testimony, I think that's in the back by Dr. Paul Farmer. Um, where he mentioned that there was a study, I think that was done by um, the CDC, I'm not sure who did it, that showed a drop in diarrheal disease in the country, which they attribute to all of these organizations providing clean water, um, which is obviously not sustainable. Um, so that, you know, they're trying to find, again, longer term, more durable solutions. Um, uh, one of them is trying to keep up um, some of the um, progress, if you can call it that, that was made by paying more attention to this particular sector um, post-earthquake. So one of the things in terms of the approach that CRS takes, I've mentioned a couple of times our principles. Um, you know, we spend inordinate amounts of time, especially in my position myself as an operations you know, person, someone who's dealing with the, the programming itself, in focusing on quality of our programming, our technical standards, meeting you know, the needs of, of, of as many people as we possibly can in these kinds of difficult circumstances. Uh, marshalling resources, you know, pipeline, logistics pipelines, you can imagine some of the, the details that you, you get kind of pulled into in these kinds of situations. Um, but we always try to make sure that we're not forgetting these core principles and these, these, these really important kind of underlying aspects or, or, or um, um, approaches to the work that we do that we need to constantly keep in our mind. And those are things like um, just the commitment to the long term. We're not a short-term relief agency. Uh, we do relief and development. And it's not a continuum. You just don't go from relief to development from one day to the next. It's more of a cycle where you've got shocks like an earthquake or a drought or a flood that hit you. Um, and then you try to get back on your feet. It might happen again. It might not. Um, you want to break people out of that cycle of poverty. But you, you're always going to be faced with these issues of cyclical shocks and other things. But as an organization, we are organized in a way where we can work all along that continuum. Um, and it helps when you're doing relief work to be thinking about the long term, to be working with local communities and trying to figure out how to um, support them in the best way possible and maintain those relationships over time as needs change. Um, again, as all of us experience, our needs change over time. Um, Haitians empowered in their own recovery. Um, some very lofty words, really hard to do. Um, for a variety of reasons. Um, I think um, Dr. Keita spoke to some of this. Um, there's a phenomenon, a history, a dynamic in the country of Haiti um, that is extremely negative in many ways and has resulted in um, an unbelievable number of organizations, people of really good will um, present in the country but maybe not doing what uh, you know, 
a real service to the people of Haiti. Um, sometimes doing for them what they can do for themselves. Um, sometimes doing negative things um, that, that aren't helping people in Haiti. Um, and I include my own organization in that kind of characterization. I think we're a little more sophisticated. I like to think that we have our eyes open, that we pay more attention to these issues. Um, but it happens, and it has been happening for decades. And we're trying very hard to shift some of the way in which we work um, to keep this in mind and truly um, empower the people that we serve um, to help themselves. Uh, and that includes not just the people we serve, individuals, but also our partners. And the Haitian church is a, a really important agent of change in Haiti. Um, we're trying to find ways in which we can support the Haitian church um, at all levels, including you know, the bishops as an important kind of leadership voice in the country um, that hasn't been heard, um, and partly their own fault, partly um, because they, you know, a whole variety of reasons. Um, but also um, all those people that make up the church in Haiti. CRS has traditionally worked with the, the institutional church in Haiti, um, again, because of our historical legacy, our work with our, our partners, our Caritas partners primarily, but there are many, many, many other church partners and, and, and players in Haiti, congregations, others. So we're trying to figure out how to broaden that, um, our relationships with a whole variety of different groups. Um, because we feel that this goes back to what I mentioned in one of the earlier slides around the role of civil society. And the Haitian church is an incredibly important actor in civil society, again, at all these different levels. Um, so um, trying to help strengthen civil society in that regard. Um, targeting those that are most vulnerable seems pretty obvious, but um, in a place like Haiti where um, the poverty levels are so high, um, almost everybody is vulnerable in one way or another, except for perhaps that small elite. Um, so it's, it's a struggle. It's not an easy thing to do in a place like Haiti. And I can give you an example of the Petionville Club, where um, when this site that I mentioned that the government identified for relocation of people and to build some transitional shelters for a longer term, not long term, but a medium term solution, let's say, um, we worked with camp management to move about 4,000 people out of the camp, people that were living in the most dangerous parts of the camp, low-lying areas that could, would be flooded away and so on. Um, very organized, well done, people were given some additional cash support and, and, and were given a place to live out there. Um, again, lots of reasons why they didn't want to be out there, which we discovered later on. But um, within about a week, about 4,000 more people came in and took over that space. Why? They had a house. They were, you know, they were, they were in their community. There were NGOs providing water and sanitation and health care and child-friendly spaces. Um, and other kinds of things. So people just, you know, when, you, when your relative level of, of, of living standard is such that, that, you know, even that marginal additional assistance is, is usually important, um, you've got, again, an extremely challenging phenomenon. Um, and finally, I won't speak too long about integral human development, but that's our conceptual framework for how we understand the work that we do. And it involves not just meeting basic needs, you know, as I mentioned earlier, trying to figure out what people bring to their own development as well and to, and to lift that up. But it also tries to look at systems and structures, those underlying causes of injustice and poverty, and trying to start addressing those in a, in a, in a number of ways. Um, I might be going over here. I'm not sure about the timing. But, but just to say, in the US, we also focus very much on the United States, um, particularly the Catholic um, community in the United States, and try to provide opportunities for people to engage in our work overseas. These are the broad categories in which we try to provide resources and support to people. Um, 
I like to emphasize the give part. I think it's a good one um, <laughs> from my own operations perspective. Um, although I will say for Haiti, people have been unbelievably generous and it's provided us with an opportunity to really do some large scale programming and look longer term, um, which has been unbelievably important. But there are other aspects. Obviously, not everyone can give, not everyone can go to Haiti, um, provide a service. So other aspects are just education. We provide a lot of educational materials. It's learning about the country, learning about you know the history that Dr. Kata referred to and spoke to, um, incredibly complex and overlooked in our in, in our culture and our society. We try to provide at least some basic kind of support for that. Um, and in terms of act, there's a lot that Americans can do to support uh, future positive development in Haiti. And one thing is to engage in the Catholics Confront Global Poverty Campaign that CRS and the U.S. Catholic Conference of Bishops have um, initiated that look at these broad areas of advocacy and particularly legislative um, activity that's happening in, in Congress. And around Haiti, these particular areas, we're working very hard to try to um, be sure that the voice of Haitians is brought into this understanding on the part of our, our members of Congress when they're dealing with legislation that affects Haiti, trade policy, um, you know, the, the foreign assistance that's going to be provided, how it's provided. Um, so we work very hard to try to provide this kind of support. And by engaging in this Catholics Confront Global Poverty uh, campaign, people can get text messages, emails that highlight you know, what the issues are and when a vote is coming up in Congress so that people can here engage in calling their congressperson to um, advocate for um, the best possible um, policy or um, law to um, support patients. Merci en pile. Thank you very much. Um, I would love to take questions. I I'm sorry if I went over, but um, thank you. Can you take about uh, three, four minutes of questions, but and then we'll be breaking for lunch for about two minutes or so and coming back to engage Anne-Marie in, in more discussion, okay? Yes, sir. Um, CRS has received criticism because the numbers seem to show that CRS was on the lower end of the amount of money allocated for immediate relief. Mm -hmm. uh, is that true? Uh, was that a decision? And what is the justification for that decision? Sure. Now, I'm glad you asked the question because that was, I thought, extremely unfortunate and a very kind of broad stroke painting of what the actual situation is. Um, if you look now, um, we are not sort of on the lower end. And when they asked the question, this was there was a CBS News story, for those of you that might not be aware, um, in June, May, I think, or June, um, and it showed that we had only spent a very small amount of the, the, the funding that we had received. And CRS is one of the largest um, private um, organizations in terms of the amount of funding that we've received for the earthquake response. Um, the, the, the basic fact of the matter, we hadn't accounted for it yet. We'd spent it, but our staff spend more time doing than accounting and to be blunt about it. Um, it was all sort of in the pipeline, and when we finally, because of this story, said, you know, finance people get moving because <laughs> we need to kind of account for all this. Um, the current numbers, which you can see in the book, are, are on a par with, with other organizations. So it wasn't a deliberate decision. We weren't underspending. We were um, working incredibly hard. We spent about $39 million in the first six months, um, and probably more than that because, um, you know, purchases that get made don't get paid until three or four months later. Um, I, you know, when looking at that, it was funny because, I, you know, I remember going into my boss and saying, I just wrote a check for $1.2 million. Well, I signed a check <laughs> to buy you know, lumber for building these houses, and it's not here, and the medical classes aren't here. 
in the end, um, quite frankly, I don't care about that. That's not important in the big scheme of things. Um, it's important if people think I'm not going to give to that organization or support that organization if they're not spending the money wisely. Um, from my own personal perspective, I'm about doing the work and um, we'll let other people at Sierra's deal with that, the fallout. <laughs> it was unfortunate, it was inaccurate. Yes? Just to follow up a bit, uh, the, the question of credibility, perception, and the media, uh, mm -hmm. which you, all organizations, have to deal with. Uh, what, what relief organization, or what can relief organizations do in partnering with multimedia opportunities to get the word out? Uh, I missed the CBS report, so I was immediately shocked when I heard the report, uh, you know, hearsay, mm -hmm. and was not at all surprised when you said uh, what you said. And so, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate the media is going to paint the picture that makes the biggest story and sells the most newspapers, and that's just the nature of the media. So we do try to work with the media in educating and yeah. providing reports. And the report that we have for you, that's actually for our major, for our donors. Mm -hmm. um, it's, and it's our responsibility to account back for how we're spending the money, and we will do that every six months um, until you know the money has been spent, as we did with the tsunami response. Um, we try to be very transparent. It's on our website um, in trying to provide those kinds of, um, that kind of information. Um, again, we are slow in just our systems and accounting for all of these things. Um, but I think, you know, trying to educate the media, working with them, our staff do do that. Um, we do sort of encourage reporters to go down and meet with our staff, see the program, see the work that's being done. But it is an education process and, it, and it's tough because you are dealing with, um, you know, their need and their kind of angle. And that particular reporter, I mean, I just thought that was such a shoddy job, um, quite frankly. But, you know, I've, I've, NPR and others have done really wonderful work. Um, sorry, go ahead. Just a quick follow-up on credibility. Mm -hmm. uh, was Lisa Anderson at Columbia at any time when you were there? Uh, Not that I recall. I would, okay, yeah, she, she just recently completed uh, tenure as the dean of the international. She wasn't there at the time. Uh, but she, she has a book that I think would be very, very helpful for others to be aware of if they're not. Uh, on uh, politics and power in the 21st century, where she does a very, very good history of the development of social science methodology and then <clears throat> brings it home, meaning to the United States, and says that's the model that has gone out to all of the uh, sovereign nation, state universities, higher education, and it doesn't work. And it doesn't work because it's not holistic. And so you've got the academics who are cranking numbers, and they're reporting on CBS and you know comparable. So when we move to talking about areas for partnership, and particularly the academic side, can can you provide us? and by way of anticipation of how academics can be more credible as Dr. Cato was credible, and, and Frank, I'm sorry I missed your presentation, but the credibility that we're hearing here, how can we expand that so as to have a partnership with CRS, Villanova University, and others, but 
have the academics actually contribute and recognize that you didn't bring things down at all, but rather what you did was to provide what Dr. Kada set for the experiential affective realities that makes us a yeah, it's a good point, and it's something I think that we, we are, as an organization with Catholic Relief Services for the last few years, starting these more sort of formal partnerships with universities and trying to figure that out. I mean, that is ultimately about bringing academia together with practitioners yeah, right. and trying to find that happy middle where we learn from each other, support each other, and um, you, know, you bring more informed, perhaps, from reality and you know, daily mm -hmm. living. Um, uh, you know, teaching in the classroom, and we bring that academic study and, and experience and perspective to the work that we do in serving the poor and vulnerable overseas. Um, you know, in some respects, we, in some examples, we've had tremendously great and positive collaborations. Others have not been so, and I do think part of that is um, learning more about each other and how we work and what's important to us, what drives us, what you know, who we're beholden to, and so on and so forth. But I think it's getting better. I see a lot of opportunity, and I know that's part of what we're going to be talking about a little bit over lunch. Mm -hmm. um, Polly Wolf, will you be back after lunch? Okay. Um, we, uh, before I thank Anne-Marie, I just want to, because uh, I know some of you are, lead, are leading, Anne-Marie mentioned uh, the November 8th conference. We are going to be holding a major symposium on the global water crisis, conflict, and cooperation on November 8th. Ken Hackett, the president of Catholic Relief Services, will be giving the plenary address. He will be addressing the situation in Haiti. That's in the evening at 7.30. But this conference is going to cover <coughs> issues like the privatization of water, appropriate technology, public health and water, water and conflict. We have our, our uh, faculty from the law school participating. There's going to be a special session for engineers on Sunday night. It's going to be a pre-conference um, Sunday night for engineers to help them think through possibilities, career choices in engineering, international development, humanitarian engineering, and peace building. So I just wanted to lock that and keep that in the back of your brains. We'll be doing a lot of publicity on this. But we are going to, wait one second. We are going to, I see my students zipping their bags in. <laughs> um, uh, we're going to reconvene at uh, 12.45. We've got lunch in the back. You can bring your lunch to your table, and we'll go then from 12.45 to 1.30. Um, and have an con extended conversation with Anne-Marie. But I do want to thank you for bringing all of your experience and sharing it with us and in such, a, such an effective way. I look forward to more conversation with you, Anne-Marie.